Back to season two of podcast at SDA. I'm David Bridell. Thanks very much to Phil Allen and the team in the studio for helping us put this together. And in this series of podcasts, I've chosen to focus on our faculty at the School of Dramatic Arts, uh, conduct some one-on-one interviews, and to see what ticks in those extraordinary brains uh, that surround us on a day-to-day basis. So first up, and a warm welcome to our new assistant professor of theater practice, Christopher Shaw. Welcome, Chris. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, it's great to have you with us. And um, yes, I have. Uh, I haven't told you anything about what's just about to happen. So we're going to have a conversation about you and see how it flows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure, that's your favorite thing to talk about yes, on indeed. a Monday morning. All right. Um, so. Chris, I'm looking back over your um, career and your uh, resume, and I noticed that there's quite a lot of um, New York City activity and quite a lot of Los Angeles activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your original undergraduate degree was at North Carolina School of the Arts. Is that, as am I accurate about that? Or was it Circle in the Square? It was both. I was at North Carolina School of the Arts for two years. Okay. And uh, Circle in the Square for two years. Okay. And you graduated in New York. Is that where you kind of... Yeah, technically. I mean, Circle in the Square was a certificate program, so it was a two-year sort of intensive right. actor training program. And right. I completed that. Uh-huh. With, and at the time that I was there, it was some like amazing teachers. Such as? Uh, Michael Kahn, oh. who was also at Juilliard, Niga Sakharopoulos. Okay. Um, uh, Jackie Brooks, who was an actress, that the thing I think that was amazing about her was that she was kind of always working. Uh-huh. So she was able to sort of take all of these sort of mysterious techniques and apply them to the truly practical okay. and sort of demystify them, which was pretty great. So we will, I'm sure, plunge into teaching a little bit later in the conversation. But first of all, did you um, did you become kind of footloose and fancy free as an actor in New York? Is that where it, it started for you professionally? Yeah, it is. It um, well, yeah, professionally for sure. And it was I was lucky in that when I graduated from school. Um, well, first of all, there were two of us that looked ridiculously young, like much younger than we really were for okay. years, and we were the two people that worked all the time. <laughs> um, and it was like maybe two months out of school, I booked my first professional equity job mm-hmm. at a regional theater in Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice and warm up there. Yeah. And uh, I thought that's how it was going to be. It was sort of like, wow, two months out, I got my first job. <laughs> and of course, it was thrilling to be working with professional actors and getting paid and being you know, on an equity contract. And I quickly found out after that first gig that you know there were these pauses <laughs> between work. How very theatrical! Yeah. Um, uh, so what uh, what was the show in Buffalo? It was The Foreigner by Larry Shu. Okay. And uh, interestingly, uh, and I guess tragically, really, a woman that was in the show. Uh, or no, she was in the next show, which was Children of a Lesser God, mm-hmm. and she was close friends with Larry Shu. And it was when Larry Shu. Um, died, which I think he was in a plane wreck or something okay. crazy. Mm-hmm. And it happened while we were working on his play, which oh, was kind of bizarre. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and I, I went from that to sort of moving in and out between stuff in New York, off-Broadway stuff in New York, um, Playwrights Horizons, Circle Rep, um, uh, The Public, mm-hmm. where I was doing, I was in one of the many f- uh, 
Shakespeare plays when Joe Papp decided to do the entire cycle. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, a lot of regional theater, but really great regional theater. Yeah, I was going to ask any particular highlights in terms of productions that you were a part of that live long in your memory. There are a lot of them. Yeah. There was one at um, Circle Rep by a playwright called Keith Curran hmm. um, uh, that I ended up replacing an actor. So it was called Walking the Dead. They were in rehearsal. Some stuff happened with a group of actors. And I got a call from a good friend of mine from the School of the Arts, Joe Mantello, mm-hmm. who was acting in the show. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, hey, you know, we've lost this actor, and I told him that you should come in and audition for this thing. So I went and auditioned, and sort of on the spot, I was offered a job. Hmm. And so myself and the woman that was hired, newly hired to play the lead, we had like 10 days to learn the show, which was slightly horrifying. But uh, it was a really terrific experience and a beautiful show. And got great response. Okay. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. those uh, sort of unconventional shows are the ones that we really remember when yeah. it's not a typical path. Ten yeah. days is not very long, right? Yeah. And, you know, the thing of the public was interesting in that the people that were in it, um, I can't say that I thought it was necessarily a great production. It was a production of Romeo and Juliet. But uh, Anne Mira played the nurse. Milo O'Shea uh, hmm. Did revived his role from you know the Zeffirelli film of the Friar. Right. Peter McNichol was Romeo. Cynthia Nixon was Juliet. Doesn't sound it was, too shabby. Yeah, it was well, um, Peter Francis James, um, Courtney B. Vance. Oh wow. Yeah, it was a crazy cast. Wow. Yeah. And that was in the building, or it was in the park. It was in the building. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what brought you out west? I mean, you have a, a long and storied career here in Los Angeles, so what was the first thing that, that connected you to our fair city? I was in in New York. I did a, a little bit of TV and a little bit of film. And I did this film called uh, Dogfight, which is sort of a, a sleeper film, but I think a really beautiful film mm. um, about... Um, it turns into a love story. It was with River Phoenix and Lily Taylor. But it starts out with these guys that are uh, the very early parts of Vietnam. So it's these rather naive uh, Marine Corps um, guys that don't even realize what it is they're going to Mm -hmm. in terms of Vietnam. Um, And I did that, and I think between that experience and a television experience where for, you know, uh, a week of work I was making more than I made in regional theater in two Mm -hmm. months, I was sort of like, hmm. (laughs) Um, So part of it was that appeal of... You know, more opportunities in TV and film yeah. is what brought me out here. Yeah. Um, and then I got involved with uh, a couple of smaller theaters out here that do really terrific work, the Echo Theater Company, um, Pacific Resident Theater. Yeah. And uh, it was a great sort of place to continue working yeah. and exercise and play, you know. So... Uh, I, st- I continued to. I worked in television and film out here, but I continued to stay very involved with the theater as well. Is that where you started testing out your directing chops in either of those two companies? No, I started the directing chops. To be honest, I was um, when I was teaching at Fullerton. I was first offered uh, an acting class at Fullerton, and the chair at Fullerton said, "Oh, I'm also going to give you this play," uh-huh. and I was sort of like, "Okay." And I kind of pretended 
a little bit. I was, yeah, I was kind of like, okay, yes, no, I've directed before, uh-huh. um, and discovered that I had a talent for it mm. and really enjoyed it. Mm. So that was truly the first time I was doing, a, you know, a big chunky full-length play. Some of what we might get into now would sort of segue a little bit into the realms of um, working with others as either a director or an acting teacher. But I wanted to ask you whether, as a director, you are consciously or, in retrospect, have you unconsciously sourced the work of any other particular director? Is there someone that you have been worked with as an actor who sort of lives on in your directing life? Yeah, I mean, that brings me back to... um Productions that sort of have stayed with me. And I worked with Nancy Keystone uh, and her company, Critical Mass. Mm -hmm. And what the company does is through a tremendous amount of research, they begin to uh, devise. Um, She does some writing. Some of it's through improvisation. There's a lot of uh, uh, movement work Mm -hmm. and movement exploration um, from improvisation. And we worked on this thing for, I joined them after they had been working on this. It was called Apollo. Mm. And it was about, uh, it was sort of tracing the um, the course of the rocket science, the German rocket scientists after World War II, some of whom were Nazis, a part mm. of the Nazi party that were sort of swept up and brought over to the United States. And they had been working on it for like two years before I joined them. And we, I proceeded to work on it for another two years mm-hmm. with them, where we'd be in and out of workshops. But it went to first to the first season at the Kirk Douglas Theater. Yeah. And then after that, we developed a third part of it, which was the intersection of the civil rights movement and uh, NASA and the Nazi soldiers or the Nazi um, rocket scientists in Huntsville mm-hmm. as a third part of this piece. And then it went to um, Portland Center Stage in uh, in Portland, Oregon. And the way, I find that a lot of what she has done in terms of the way that she works has definitely influenced me. How can you carry the um, spirit of a four-year rehearsal you know, experience, albeit intermittent, but nevertheless you know, crossed over so much time? into the kind of thing that you're asked to do here at USC or anywhere else as a director when you have maybe six weeks? I think it's... I think it's sort of, you know, um, part of what... part of what I learned from her was the way in which to move the piece forward uh-huh. in perhaps sometimes in the less traditional way. Um, but I also think it's giving the actors room... Uh, even with the awareness of limited time, giving the actors room or setting something up in a particular way to give them a little bit of room to explore. Mm -hmm. And then off of what I see them do, begin to shape the piece, as opposed to coming in with this very clear, definite idea of exactly how it's supposed to look. That some of it comes, that my shaping the piece or shaping a scene comes from, in a way, being inspired by seeing what the actors themselves are doing and then helping uh, clarify it more. You're making me recall that I was once asked to direct a show in Israel, and uh, it was going to be in Hebrew, and I was terrified because I don't speak Hebrew. And I went to the first day of rehearsal with an exercise book, you know, 50 pages long, absolutely stock full of staging plans. <laughs> yeah, this actor will move over here, this actor will come over here, tempos, rhythms, all of that. 
fortunately, I'm glad to report I threw it away within a couple of days. But um, but that is kind of uh, one of the paradoxes of directing, no, that you must have a vision, uh, I think, or else the piece may suffer or sort of run into questions that don't get answered even all the way through production. And yet you must also give space to the people that you're working with. Uh, how, how is it possible to do that, I want to ask? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, it's, yeah, you have to sort of have a plan. I mean, it's similar to teaching, really. You sort of have to have a plan and then also be ready to th throw the plan out the window yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And then other times I'm very insistent. Yeah. As, you know, what's interesting is, especially with younger actors, I'll see someone come in with a really strong idea of who they think the character is, what they think uh, is happening in a scene. And part of my time sometimes is sort of pushing them in another direction and like a rubber band that snaps right back to uh -huh. what they were doing the day before. And it's sort of like, no, that's not. <laughs> I know you think that's who the character is, but that's not who the character is. And I know that you like doing that so very much. Right. But we're going to go this way. Right. Um, so there's... There's some stubbornness on my part, and I guess it's a bit of uh, give and take, and then also some insistence and stubbornness on my part. Yeah, I wonder um, a little bit about the the way in which directing, especially in a school like ours, um, becomes a tool for teaching actors how to act. Uh, you, you've alluded to this obviously already. Um, when you're in the room, do you uh, do you purposefully and publicly take the actor back to the basics of the classroom and talk about sort of core principles? Or are you beyond that and just sort of only working with the text and the, the, the story that you're currently and, you know, exploring? No, always, really. Mm -hmm. um, it's always, you know, back to acting 101, and it's also in directing and in teaching, you know, my constantly re reiterating that acting 101 is where everybody starts. Uh -huh. That really, at least by my experience, the first day of rehearsal for a Broadway show, uh -huh. an off-Broadway show, a big regional theater show, is you're starting with those core principles. It's, that's where you start. Yeah. And so I do see students jumping to uh, performance results or an idea of the character, and uh, I'm constantly sort of pulling them back and recalibrating and pointing them in the direction of um, the fundamentals and the basics as the starting point. Uh, at the risk of both of us descending into didacticism, uh, <laughs> what, are those, what are those core principles for you? I mean, if you had to sort of characterize them. Well, uh, part, I mean, part of it is teaching the actor uh, where to concentrate because mm. they're certainly all quite enthusiastic and willing to put their mm -hmm. concentration and their energy towards something, <laughs> something right. some sort of idea of acting. Right. Um, but, you know, I think clarifying what is the problem in the scene and what is it that you want as the character and how are you going to go about getting that and that often the answer to what you want or what you think you want is in the other person mm -hmm. so that it connects them to their scene partner and that there's a different kind of listening. It's not just listening to the words that the other person's saying, but it's a connection to the other person's energy. And um, in the active live pursuit, in 
the scene in the moment of trying to get this thing that you want and really listening to the other person, also tricking yourself, fooling yourself into uh, what are your expectations. So, you know, if I'm trying to, um, you know, convince you to go to this wild party with me and you are saying no, 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 and I'm using different ways to try and convince you, somehow I perhaps I can surprise myself uh, and and put myself in a place of um, spontaneity or as if it's happening for the first time and thinking that the particular thing I'm going to say is absolutely going to get you to say uh-huh. yes, and it doesn't. Uh-huh. Now where do I go? Uh-huh. So that it engages them in the moment as opposed to some sort of premeditated uh, idea of what the scene might be. I had a, um, a very uh, fortunate experience in that I was able to shadow the great acting teacher Earl Gister, who, who was wow. um, you know, such a leading light at Yale many years ago, now yeah. deceased. And I distinctly recall on the subject that we're talking about now that Earl would sit to actors sort of face-to-face, similar to where we're, how we're sitting now, and ask, using the text of the scene, ask one actor to focus on how they were making the other actor feel. Mm-hmm. That was a specific language. Mm-hmm. Later on, I discovered that other equally you know, um, memorable acting teachers don't, don't like that s- semantic terminology or don't use it. They veer away from the idea of listening to feelings and they look for something else. Do you have a, a position anywhere in here when it comes to uh, the use of the word feeling or the, or the experience of emotion for an actor? Well, you know, I, I think that I'm, as an actor and a teacher and as a director, I'm constantly curious and learning myself, yeah. you know, and some of it definitely is trial and error. But I think, and I've definitely um, used that terminology uh-huh. myself, but I also think it's it depends on the circumstance of the scene. Uh-huh. You know, I, I used to say I don't like the word tactic because it seems so calculated. Well, in some instances, the character does have tactics. Sure. In another instance, they're trying to make they are trying to make the other person feel a particular way. Yeah. In another instance, they're trying to make the person do uh-huh. a particular thing. Yeah. So I think it's the, the terminology has to become more specific and broader based on mm. the moment, really. Yeah, I, I found myself in class the other day hitting upon the words uh, causing a change in the other, which I... Yes, which is terrific. Yeah, how do you want to change the person yeah. to get what you want and or it, get what you need? It yeah. does allow that sort of elasticity to, you know, as you said, tactical or emotional or, or um, action-based. Um, yeah, I was going to say, there's another thing that, I'm, that I'm, I come up against, which is um, what it costs you hmm. as if we say that the actor and the character are, are one and the same, um, and that the character isn't this idea outside of yourself, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of younger actors think it is, if it is, in fact, you in this situation, uh, a lot of times what I'll see is it's just too easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's no cost. Mm-hmm. And so um, often I'm saying, no, it's you know exactly that. It's just too easy. What does it cost you? You're losing this person. You're saying goodbye to them forever. Right. That's not going to be solved with a smile. Right. It's going to cost you something. And it seems to uh, rather quickly deepen their connection and the stakes become much higher. So you've opened the door to to a line of questioning that I was hoping we'd get to. So um, I understand the notion that you've proposed, which is that everyone begins back at the 101, and we've talked a little bit about what that might consist of. And I totally agree. But 
But I'm always curious to hear from others how they then um, massage this delicate process towards character. For example, if a 20-year-old is playing a 60-year-old, or um, you know, if, uh, if an American is playing a British person, or if we're dealing with Shakespeare and we're looking at mores and you know, kind of ways of behavior that are hundreds of years old, or indeed in Chekhov, or et cetera. It's an mm -hmm. endless list, right? Mm -hmm. um, what is the delicate journey from uh, the personal connection to the character that actually is not entirely the self of the actor? Oh, that's a complicated question. Yeah, that's good. That's why we're here. Um, hmm. Well, I can think of this scene that I was just working on the other day um, in the in the play that I'm directing right now for you, uh, yeah. which is Passion Play for USC. And there's uh, two actors that are the same age, and one is playing like a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. And she innately has a really terrific connection to the character, but then it's sort of guiding her towards um, certain components that maybe she has forgotten about, which is uh, in talking to this adult, winning their trust, mm -hmm. or, or, or and then after winning their trust that he says something in particular that suddenly... Uh, intuitively, the child, the six-year-old child or the seven-year-old child, uh, can suddenly mistrust uh -huh. through. Uh, he 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 changes the ending of a fairy tale, huh. a, a well-known fairy tale, and she becomes suddenly very mistrustful of him. Uh -huh. And so it's finding those elements that begins to, I think, shape character. Uh -huh. Yeah, if it's. Uh, Gosh, it's a hard question, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I wonder about, in that case, in the example that you've put forward, I, I can only anticipate, correct me if I'm wrong, that there must be a, um, choices to be made in the realms of the physicality, for example, of, of a character who's seven or eight years old, however old you said, you know, a, mm -hmm. young, a young character. There might be choices to be made in terms of the, their ability to focus or where they put their energy or how they express themselves energetically and so on and so on. And all of these details might not belong to the actor who's playing the role in their typical series of choices or might, might not be as innate mm. as their psychic connection. So then as a director, one is presumably obligated to help them tease out these choices how do they hang on to the, the the cost that you mentioned earlier and the personal stakes? Well, I'd say also going back to character, because I'm thinking about the way that it, in some ways, in terms of the way that we rehearse, in my experience, some of it starts to take care of itself. Uh -huh. In part, you've cast someone that has uh -huh. qualities that are right for the role. Uh -huh. And then I think by patiently trusting that if you take the time to determine in each scene what's really going on and the moment to moment, that in a way character is not necessarily a quality of behavior, but it's uh, it comes out of what you do. Yeah, yeah. So that the person begins to transform and change a bit simply by um, pursuing truthfully this thing that they need and how they go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the way in which they choose to go about it begins to create character. Uh -huh. Although, yes, I mean, absolutely, there's a change in physicality, there's a change in um, energy, uh -huh. in body center, uh -huh. and that sort of thing. Uh -huh. um, Do you, are you conscious about 
the order in which you will pursue those things? Do you find yourself dealing with the, the what you might describe as the external characteristics last? No, it depends. I think I'm working off of, you know, sort of the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. And that in a scene with, there's another scene I'm thinking of where there's an actor that's playing the part of, he, it's a, you know, sort of very meta. It's like play within the play mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy that in all three parts is the character that has been cast to play Christ in the passion play. But we see him in his real life and then we see him in the play. Mm. Um, and there's often talk about how the person that the actor playing the actor has been cast in the play is, you know, ca- uh, Christ-like uh-huh. or, you know, very virginal uh-huh. playing uh, Mary the Virgin. And this actor is compelled to sort of comport himself and carry himself in this very sort of right. what he imagines to be a Christ-like way. Right. And I was watching it for a while, and I was sort of like, I don't even know myself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I was sort of like, maybe that's right. I don't know. So I watched it for a while. And then I sort of saw it getting in his way. Yeah. And he just said, you know, it's like, forget the carrying yourself, like a, being Christ-like and carrying yourself like a Christ-like person. I said, what about you, the yeah. way that I know you as a person? You're really kind of just like this goofy puppy. Right. I said, just be a goofy puppy. You know, don't feel like you have to be uh, Christ-like, because I don't even know what that is. Yeah. What is Christ-like? Who was Christ? I, you know, <laughs> again, it was Christ's point of view and the way, the way, um, what he believed in, and the way in which he communicated his ideas to people, and what he did that made him who he was. So I follow and ascribe almost entirely, but somewhere in the back of my head, I have what may well be a misquote or a misconception, but I'm going to lay it on the table anyway, from David Mamet, probably true and false, or, oh, may, right. or maybe I heard it through the voice of one of his students, because that I used to teach at the Atlantic Studio. Quote, there is no such thing as character. That always used to bug the hell out of me. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, says a lot about where I like to work and probably my, my own pitfalls. But, but what do you, uh, is that what we're saying? Well, I will say that, yeah, the, you know, David Mamet's book, was it? True and False. True and False, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I know this made a lot of people really angry. And I, <laughs> I'm sure he's delighted. I actually kind of love it, uh, uh-huh. you know. It's just like, just say the lines. Right. Just listen and say the lines, right. um, which is oversimplifying it, but there's some truth in that. Um, I think that, you know, we could say that there are, that we all have different characters within us, uh-huh. that the way in which we might be when we're talking to an employer compared to the way we behave when we're talking to a student compared to the way that we behave when we're talking to a relative or right. a parent. Right. We change. Right. There are changes within ourselves. And um, that if you start from that, if you start from that and getting clear in terms of what the circumstances are within the scene and, again, what it is you're trying to do um, and that it is you mm-hmm. or an aspect of you, mm-hmm. Um, from that comes character, and perhaps that's what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like that. Yeah. 
one of his students, I was teaching Shakespeare there, and one of his students also said to me one day, how do I say the Shakespeare's text when David Mamet says there's no such thing as language? <laughs> At which point I just threw up my hands. It's kind of reductio ad absurdum. That's hilarious. <laughs> but it's also interesting to think that he would say there's no such thing as language when oh, please. the way in which he uses of language course. is just so wonderful, <laughs> and so actually. specific. And yeah. Yeah. So, well. That's funny. Um, I like that book, though. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely provocative. Yeah. And he's loving it. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. There's lots to uh, lots to explore. Although I think he's written uh, at length now about the you know the sort of slightly quasi philosophical aspects of the theater, and um, sometimes I wish he'd just write more plays. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I wanted to ask you, Chris. Uh, actually, we're going to wade into those very quasi-philosophical waters now because why not? That's uh, that's why we can sort of spend time together and luxuriate in these ideas. When you first chose to study acting and you went through these two programs, North Carolina and uh, and Circle in the Square, um, do you recall what the impetus was for you personally? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I wanted my dad was a college professor. He was an art teacher, mm. and as a kid, I was in the fine arts department around the musicians and the theater artists and the visual artists um, all the time. And from when it was, I, as my parents, I guess, would say, is when I was old enough to shut up at the theater uh-huh. and the concerts they were taking me to uh-huh. um, performances. And I saw, speaking of transformation in a way, you know, a character in transformation, I saw a children's play at the Summerstock Theater uh, near where we lived where it was three witches. Um, one rolled itself up. In, when the little girl came home, one witch rolled itself up in a carpet. Went through, one went through a trap door in the floor and went, one went into a grandfather clock. And they all had, like, you know, the witch noses and stuff. And I was just fascinated by huh. it. How old were you? It's probably like five okay. or six. <laughs> and um, I became completely enchanted by theater. And I think initially, <laughs> initially, I, you know, I sort of wanted to be a makeup artist. Then I wanted to be a set designer. And I do have a sort of a natural interest in um, architecture and design. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, taking interest in set design. And my father sort of connected me with a colleague of his who was the head of set design at the university where he taught. And he became a, a sort of mentor for me. And I, would, I started a theater in my basement. <laughs> That's perfect. I know. The and ultimate so, yeah, cliche. Yeah, exactly. So I had a theater in my basement. Was it just you? It was just me at first. And I would choose a play and then design the set and build the set for the play. Spectacular. Yeah. You play all the parts? No. Oh. What happened is I was building this set, and I did a, you know, a little elevation scale elevation model and um, you know, color elevations and stuff. And I would call this friend of my dad's on the phone and say, you know, I, I, like, I don't know if I should use, you know, animal sizing and melt down animal glue <laughs> to size the muslin for the flats. And he's like, what book are you reading? He said, that's like the 1930s. And I was sort of like, well, is that what I, he's like, you know, actually, I think that is what you should do. You should melt down animal glue. Oh, wow. And use that as the sizing to tighten the, uh, the muslin on the flats. So, you know, Things had already moved to what using gluon to face right. flats, and right. I'm sort of stretching muslin. Um, 
So he, then my dad was sort of said, you know, you've built this set. It's like you should probably start rehearsing a play. <laughs> Seems to be the yes. uh, logical. Exactly. Kind of thing. So I enlisted friends uh, into rehearsing the play. We did the play. And uh, I think we did two performances and invited people to come see it. And I invited this uh, set design teacher, mentor. And afterwards, I took him on a tour of the set and showed him what I did and the different painting techniques and stuff. And, I, of course, I acted in the play. Yeah. And on his way out uh, of our house, he said, you know, you should really consider being an actor. And to this day, I don't know if that meant he thought I was a terrible <laughs> set designer and had no talent. Uh, or if he actually thought that I could act. You know? Wow. Yeah. Uh, but that sort of was the start. Wow. And... Um, uh, yeah, that's where I, I, I landed at School of the Arts. And, you know, this is an interesting thing about teaching, too. Uh, what um, Part of what I think it is, because it's what happened to me, is I got to School of the Arts, and I very quickly learned that what I thought acting was mm-hmm. and what it really was were two very different things. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't exactly sure if I liked what I learned. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, oh, this is what? Oh. That's what I thought it was. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if that interests me. And so I, um, I became a bit disillusioned, I suppose. And part of what I experienced more at Circle in the Square than at um, School of the Arts was people nurturing, sort of navigating the student through the disillusionment into an enthusiasm and a passion for what the work really is. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's always that transitional period. Yeah, sure. Sort of like, no, that's not, that's what you thought acting was. That's not what it is. This is the path we're going to go down. Yeah. And that part of it is, um, yeah, most definitely sort of uh, instilling a degree of enthusiasm about this, these new discoveries and the type of work that you really need to do. Mm. So I'm thinking now uh, about our current um, sort of home. Uh, here at USC as educators. And I'm wondering what you think of this. You know, we, we have a large population here, um, many of whom anticipate uh, careers as actors, set designers, stage managers, and so on in the profession, um, and others who are probably looking at Hollywood and, you know, sort of the other forms of media from, you know, where they will end up, some of which they learn here and some of which they will learn elsewhere. And then there are others who may indeed be just finding their way. Um, and uh, quite possibly, you know, if you were to catch up with them 10 years from now, they won't necessarily be quite exactly in the mainstream of, uh, of the professional theater or film television industry. So my question to you is, what are we teaching all of these people that will serve them wherever they go? I, I've... Uh, it doesn't keep me up at night because I think if pushed, I could probably cobble an answer together. But I'm so curious about it on a daily basis, and I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, I think, you know, um, as you know, you guys just uh, started hosting the teacher development program yeah. here, which I think is a fantastic program. It's so exciting that it's uh, finding a home here yeah. at USC. And I was involved with it this summer in its uh, first go go around at USC, and then I also did it in New York. And one of the teachers, Ron Van Loo, uh, who's taught for forever and is an incredibly talented teacher, said, you know, uh, how do you go into the room every day as a teacher 
and look at a group of people year after year and know that not everyone is going to make it. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is going to sustain a career in the theater, or uh, in part because it's such a tricky profession. Or should they sustain a career as an actor, not in the theater? It's such a tricky profession for all sorts of reasons, or they decide they want to do something else, or they lose interest. But um, so then, you know, ultimately, if you have that knowledge, how do you inspire yourself to continue doing what you're doing? And he's like, you know, realize that you're expanding these young people as human beings. You're teaching them life skills. You're teaching them to have curiosity mm. and look beyond um, the norm, I suppose, in a way. So we're offering, a, I think, an opening of the spirit and uh, a more expansive way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And that beyond that, um, I don't know. I think people find their way. They do. Uh, and, and it's uncanny how uh, s some of those ways are exactly what one would expect, and others mm. are completely out of the box. And um, and yet the um, I don't know about lessons. That sounds like a very sort of dull word, but the experiences that they've gathered in this kind of a, um, arena will serve them permanently. I've been thinking a lot about um, the notions of play. When I was much younger, um, <laughs> something so obvious happened. You know, the the Canadian director, Robert Lepage, I don't know if you know about his work, but he's been highly influential um, in Montreal, and he was in London for a long time doing a lot of work there. And I once saw a talk that he gave, and uh, he started out by saying, let's not forget that the word play, as in I am rehearsing a play, is also the word play, as in I am playing with, you know, with my toys. And... Um, and he then proceeded methodically and, and, you know, with a great deal of skill to sort of expound upon the value of play uh, to all of us. Sometimes nowadays I'll see that discussed in a corporate framework or in, you know, disciplines that are completely separate from the dramatic arts and here at an academy such as this giant university, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to listen to how people educate around themes and the theme of play is one that comes up mm -hmm. you know in various mm -hmm. different disciplines or different quarters is this prompting any thoughts yeah imagination mm. right and which is another such really strong key component to teaching acting and acting and performance mm. and uh in fact, I think it was Earl Gister, I may be misquoting, but I think it's Earl Gister who said, you know, ultimately it's, um, and I'm, I'm not going to say it exactly right, but, you know, ultimately it's 10% technique and 90% cowboys and Indians <laughs> at the end of the day, <laughs> which is true, right? Wow. And I think the student gets so caught up in all the concepts and all the ideas, which ultimately the starting point of explaining any of it is with language and mm intellectual theories and that kind of thing, uh, that you have to sort of remind them and, I think, ourselves mm -hmm. that, you know, it's like there was a time when we could play Star Wars on the mm -hmm. couch in the living room and, you know, a broomstick was the lightsaber and we really believed it. Mm -hmm. We're still capable of doing that. Part of it is just getting ourselves back to that. Mm -hmm. But if it's attached to imagination uh, and a suspension of disbelief, 
I think you know you think of like these guys that create um, compu- you know, insane computer programs or the yeah. guys at Apple. It's about imagination, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So that it is play, you know. Uh, how do you go beyond just the technical knowledge of computer programming or um, I don't even know the terms, but creating these amazing things at Apple and what the technical intellectual aspects of it are? First, you have to be able to dream. Yeah. 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 I like that. I think that's a perfect place to start. Chris Shaw, thanks so much for coming in today and it's my pleasure. sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, tune in next time for uh, our next episode when we will drill another member of our faculty and find out what makes them tick. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA.